The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1-7. through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. Hey, thanks, Josiah. Appreciate that. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Uh, We are at the dead center point of our Galatians series right now, uh, starting chapter four. And I thought I would open up with a universal question that's, that's been asked for centuries. And we find that question in the eighth Psalm where David says to God, when I look at the heavens, when I look at the moon and the stars, what is man? What is a human being that you should desire or care for the person? David's expressing what most of us at some point in time feel about our own lives and our own selves. In the course of history, the vastness of everything, the population of the earth, what does my life matter? Annie Dillard expressed this feeling, this perplexing feeling in an essay that she wrote called The Wreck of Time. And in that essay, she writes this. What were you doing on April 30, 1991, when 138,000 people drowned in Bangladesh? Where were you when you first heard the news? Who told you? What were your sensations? Who did you tell? Did you weep? Did your anguish last for days or for weeks? A single death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. And then she quotes the dictator Joseph Stalin, who said, who and of what import were the men whose bones bulk the Great Wall of China or the 30 million people that Mao Zedong starved or the 11 million children under the age of five who die of starvation each year? Why, they are the insignificant others. Living or dead, they are just some of the plentiful others. And you? Who are you? Are you different? How could you be? And then she mentions the serial killer Ted Bundy. After Bundy's arrest, he could not fathom all the fuss about the people whose lives he had taken. What was the big deal, said Bundy? I mean, There are so many people. How are you feeling right now? Among the living, 
Each one of us is one of seven billion. Among all human beings who've ever lived, each one of us is one out of an estimated 100 billion people. Who's heard of George Salty? Who knows who that is? No hands. Nashville, Tennessee is the place where maybe somebody knows the answer to that question in a room full of a thousand people or so. George Salty is the person who's won more Grammys than anybody else in the history of music. Who is John Tyler? Anybody know? John Tyler was the 10th president of the United States. Um, so, even those who become a big deal aren't a big deal. What is man? David goes on to answer his own question. He's the crown of creation, made a little bit less than the angels. Some of the translations say a little bit less than God. You know, this weekend, we, and tomorrow especially, we consider and celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his influence on the world, <coughs> and especially on Western society. Did you know that the driving force behind the civil rights movement and, and behind King's initiatives in particular was the biblical idea of the image of God, that each person is created uniquely, is fearfully and wonderfully made, and is of utmost value and dignity? And here in Galatians, the Apostle Paul takes this reality, the value of one, to an even higher level when he talks about how there are some in the human race who have been adopted by the Creator Himself and made children of God and ultimately heirs of everything. That's what today's passage is about. There's something to know. There's something to feel, and then there's something to expect. And I'd like to run us through those three things. <clears throat> Excuse me. First, there's something to know. And it's this, verse 5, you are all sons. Now, now, the modernist in all of us would say, well, see, there you go. Another sexist comment from a Christian text. The Bible is patriarchal, so male-driven and dominated. That's what happens when we take a statement out of its context and assign to it a different meaning than the one who spoke or wrote it. From our own grit, from our own perspective. It's like misinterpreting art. The original audience would actually hear the opposite of what modern Western ears are going to hear. For women in particular, at that time and in that context, there couldn't have been a more empowering, egalitarian statement than you are all sons. You're all sons. Women are elevated by Christianity. And that's one of the things that made Christianity so unique was it made women equals to men. You know, the first sign of the covenant was circumcision. There was only one gender who could be circumcised, and the other gender uh, was, was covered by the circumcision of her father or her husband. But when the fullness of time comes, 
And when the fullness of the covenant is expressed, circumcision gets replaced by baptism, for which girls are equally, have equal access as boys and women have equal access as men to the covenant sign of baptism. In the church of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden you see women taking on leadership roles in the early church under the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. You've got Anna, who's a prophetess. Lydia, who's an astute businesswoman who opens up a church in her own house. You've got Phoebe, who's described in the original Greek as a deacon in the church at Kenchere, a leader. You've got Junia, who was mighty and esteemed among the apostles. You've got the first resurrection witnesses, all women. And so it goes. <clears throat> you know, we looked at the 28th verse of chapter 3 last week, where we learned that Christianity is the place where pecking orders come to die. Where superiority and inferiority come to die. Where a lack of equality come to die. That's Christianity. Because in Christ there's no Jew nor Gentile, there's no slave nor free. There's no male nor female in terms of value, in terms of dignity, in terms of contribution in Christ Jesus. It wasn't lost on me, and I hope it wasn't lost on you, that this passage itself, when it's talking about Jesus, God in the flesh, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, that Paul made a point of saying he was born of a woman. He came into the world through a she. You are all sons, he says, and therefore you are all heirs. So what's the context? What's the context here? Remember, they're, they're in the Greco-Roman world, the ancient Greco-Roman world, and that was a world in which only sons could receive an inheritance. And in fact, say you had <coughs> two elderly uh, people, two elderly parents, a husband and a wife, mother and a father, and let's say they had six daughters, Six grown daughters, no sons. What they would do before they died was they would look for a young man to adopt in their family so that they could have an heir of their estate. That's how it worked in Greco-Roman society. Because, because girls, women were not qualified by virtue of their gender in Greco-Roman society to be heirs. And in comes Jesus Christ, in comes Christianity, in comes the apostles, they say, ah, you're all heirs now. You're all heirs. Men, women, children, Jew, Gentile, slavery, everyone in Christ is an heir. Full heirs. You know, the Bible's always using gender metaphors. This isn't sexist language any more than calling men who are believers in Christ part of the bride of Christ. The Bible is using metaphors familial me metaphors to describe God's posture toward us. If, if you are a son, that means you are privileged. That's another way of saying you have privilege too. If you are part of the bride of Christ, it means you are, you are cherished, deeply cherished by Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. And so this still raises the question though, because there's a lot of us language and y'all language in, in the original text. <coughs> reads, so much of it reads so communal, like, like so much of the Bible does. But one detail that's easy to miss is there's also a deeply personal, individualized element to this teaching. 
Verse 4 says, you know, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son to redeem us. There's a community word. So that we, there's another community word, would receive adoption as sons. There, there's, again, a, plural, a plurality to this. And then so, so we ask the question, you know, all this us language, what about me? Is the me, is the I, is the you singular lost in the us or is there something else going on here? You know, Abraham is a central figure in Galatians. As Paul makes his arguments about grace, uh, he refers back to the book of Genesis where God says to Abraham, your descendants are going to number as many as the sand, the grains of sand on the ocean and the stars in the sky. And, and, and so again, we think, I'm just a grain of sand? I'm just one star out of all the galaxies. And we're back to, the, we're back to Annie Dillard. We're back to... Joseph Stalin, we're back to Ted Bundy again. What is man? What is, what is a woman? You know, today there are two and a half billion Christians. Two and a half billion adopted daughters and sons of God. I'm just one of them. Over the course of history, actually in 2050, lest we, lest we assume that all the narrative is right, that the church is declining, that the church is tanking out, that Christianity is going into the tank... Estimated number of Christians in 2050. Today it's two and a half billion. 2050 estimate is three billion. It's this whole narrative about the church in decline. That, that's almost exclusively a Western white narrative. There's a whole world out there, a whole global church out there. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. It's growing like crazy. And again, I'm just one. You're just one. And yet, here, here, here Paul goes, also getting personal. Verse 7, you are no longer a slave. He switches from the plural to the singular. But a son, and if a son, an heir through God. Am I just a face in the crowd? Am I a statistic? Am I among the insignificant, plentiful others because there are so many people? No, no. You know, we sang in one of our songs <clears throat> that God is omniscient, all-knowing. That includes being all-knowing about not, not just who we are and what our stories are, but our deepest, most inmost thoughts. He's also omnipresent. It means he's everywhere, all the time. There is an intimacy that goes along with the usness in the kingdom of God. You know, Isaiah 43 we're told by the Lord, I've called you by name, you're mine. In the 139th Psalm, we're told you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You've been knit together in your mother's womb. The Lord has searched you and he knows you. He's acquainted with all of your ways. Jesus said, I know your father in heaven knows the number of hairs that are on your head. And for some of us, that's a source of shame. And for others of us... That's a source of delight, right? You know, I was reading about an app that, that people are scared of. It's a facial recognition app. And the, the, the taglines are the end of privacy because of this app, this facial recognition app. We've got this technology where if your face is identified in China, we know you're, you were in China. 
or we know you were in Alaska, or we know that you were in Nashville, because nobody has a face like yours. Nobody's ever had a face like yours. That's why they have fingerprint technology for solving crimes, because nobody has the same set of fingerprints. Out of 100 billion estimated people that have ever lived, nobody has your fingerprints. That's how unique you are. That's how seen you are. That's how fearfully and wonderfully made you are. There is something to know. There's also something to feel. Those with Presbyterian sensibilities especially listen up to this. Because you are sons, because as Bruce Hornsby said, that's just the way it is and some things will never change. This is one of the things that will never change. You are sons. Whether you feel it or not, that's your status. But there's this third person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit that's meant to help you not just know that but feel it. Because your sons, God has sent his spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, that's, a, that's Aramaic for Papa, Father, you are no longer a slave but a son. The, the word here for cry is krasdan. And what Paul is saying is adoption makes you sons and heirs. The Holy Spirit makes you feel like sons and heirs. It takes what's true and it drives it into your heart. And then it transforms your life as it drives it into your heart. <coughs> C.S. Lewis said that doctrine or you know, theology, the Bible, doctrine, Lewis said, is like a map. It is not Scotland, but you won't experience Scotland without it. So there's a sense in which, and Jesus touched on this when he said, you've got to love the Lord your God with your mind, with all of your mind. There's no true knowing and no true getting close to God without knowing him for who he is and how he's defined himself and all of his attributes and his history and his story and his intentions toward his people and toward the world. You, you have to get deeply acquainted with what he's revealed about himself in the truth, in the scriptures. But that's not all. There's a love with the heart, soul, strength, and mind, right? Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the starting point. But then from there, the heart gets affected and then the life gets ignited. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry for the cough. Maya Angelou said, people will forget what you said People will forget what you did, but people will never forget what you made them feel. Uh, so Tom Douglas says this about art. You know, Tom's a Nashville songwriter, friend to many of us in our community, uh, part of our community. And Tom says, good art, you will never forget how it made you feel. Maya Angelou is saying the same thing. So doctrine, theology, truth, loving God with our mind, that's that's probably Presbyterianism's main contribution, best contribution to the broader kingdom of God. Where we can be challenged sometimes, while we love the Lord our God with our mind, with all of our minds, where we can sometimes be challenged is in loving the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and strength. You know, there are, you know, so it goes, there are heart people and there are head people 
And the head people, one of the, one of the challenges of the head people is that we can easily become suspicious of the feels. It's an affliction among the chosen frozen to be suspicious of all the fields. And yet the Psalms, the prayers that Jesus prayed, are full of human emotion. You know, John Piper did a sermon called Songs That Shape the Heart and Mind, and he just started to catalog some of the different emotions that that are there in the Psalms. Among that list, loneliness, love, awe, sorrow, regret, contrition, discouragement, shame, exultation, marveling, delight, joy, gladness, fear, anger, peace, grief, desire, hope, a broken heart, gratitude, zeal, pain, confidence, all the feels. Heart, soul, strength, out of the mind. See how it all comes together? See how we are fully human? We're meant to be holistic creatures. We're not meant to be binary creatures. We're not meant to be disintegrated. We're not meant to be, you math people, a something other than an integer, which is like a whole number, right? We're not meant to become disintegrated where the mind is superior to the feelings or the feelings are superior to the mind. There's not supposed to be such thing as head people and heart people. We're all supposed to be head and heart people, heart and head, and then hands. See what I did there? My Wilson Benton alliteration. Sinclair Ferguson, part of, part of our heritage, wonderful man of God, faithful pastor and writer and theologian. <coughs> he, he tries to unpack the, the, Jesus' famous parable in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son who ran away from home and then he makes a train wreck of his life and, 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 and prepares a speech because he says, there's no other place I can go, so I guess I'll go back to the, the house I was raised in. And I, but, but I know better than to ask if I can have all the privileges of a son again, so I'll just ask my dad if I can be a slave or a servant, if I can be a hired hand, and maybe I'll get some shelter and a bed and some leftover food. And so as Sinclair Ferguson unpacks that parable, he says this, in that parable, and I quote, Jesus was underlining the fact that the reality of the love of God for us is the last thing to dawn on us. As we fix our eyes on ourselves, our past failures, our present guilt, it seems impossible that the Father should love us. So many Christians go through much of their lives with a prodigal suspicion. Like the prodigal, we have a native inability to believe that salvation is completely by grace and love. We are slow to realize the implications of this. We have the status of sons, but we have the mindset of a hired servant. The status of sons, the mindset of a hired servant. How do we get unstuck? So there's another place where Jesus teaches about the nature of the Father, what he's like. And it's, it's, it's where the disciples say, how do we connect? Teach us, Lord, to pray. And then Jesus teaches them the Lord's Prayer, which is a really great outline, you know, a great sort of launching pad in each of its elements for, for a life of prayer. But there's a teaching that he puts right alongside 
the Lord's Prayer. You know, the first line of which is, Our Father, who art in heaven, right? And then, then, then Jesus goes into another teaching in the same context. This is specifically in the Luke 11 version. And he says, Which of you who are fathers, if your child asks you for bread, you'll give him a, a, a rock? Or if your child asks for an egg, you'll give him a snake or a, a scorpion? And he goes on, he says, you wouldn't think of it. Even though you're evil, Jesus says. I love how direct he is. Even though you're evil, you've got all kinds of twisted motives in your heart. You're prone to wander every day, prone to leave the God you love. Even though you're evil, you still want to give good gifts to your kids. How much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? If there's something to ask God for, let the secondary thing be a better marriage, happier children, more resources, a satisfying career, the ability to succeed at what are you. Let those be secondary prayers. Those are important prayers. God cares about the number of hairs on your head. He cares about your desires. Pray your desires, but don't pray your desires to the neglect of the Father's desire that you not only know about your sonship, but you feel it. And the way that you get to feel it is the Holy Spirit who, who lives inside of you drives it into your heart. So pray that. Ask the Father for the Holy Spirit. He's a good Father. He's going to give you the Spirit. And it's going to feel different than you think it will. Because the Psalms. There's as much or more lament in the Psalms as there is clapping of hands and rejoicing and celebrating. You know, Elton John said it well, sad songs say so much. Sad Psalms say so much about what it means to be intimate with God. Sometimes the longing itself, the longing, the already and the not yet, the not yet part that I keep asking, I keep knocking, I keep pursuing, and I still feel like that deer panting for water, that thirsty deer. I'm still thirsty. When are you going to satisfy my thirst? And, and God comes in and he says, look at the prayers. Look at the Psalms. I'm giving you something more than you think you need. I'm giving you what? This longing that you have actually is intimacy. It actually is intimacy. It's not a step toward it. It is intimacy. Even Paul said, 1 Corinthians 13, this is the Paul who'd gotten a, a visual of, of the risen Jesus Christ and had a conversation with the risen Christ and who'd been given visions of glory, glimpses of heaven. That Paul says this, we, including himself, we see now only as a mirror dimly. But then we will see face to face. What's then? When is then? I'm glad you asked. Which brings me to the last thought. Something to expect, something to anticipate, something to wait for, something worth waiting for. Remember the prodigal says to his father, make me one of your hired servants. And what the father says is, oh, no, 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 no. I think we have a misunderstanding here. There's a robe, there's a signet ring, 
there are sandals, and there is a feast. And I've been, I've been preserving all of it for your homecoming day. It's always been yours. And now it's going to finally be realized, and we're going to invite the whole community to celebrate your homecoming. Paul sounds so similar here when he says, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then also an heir. An heir of what? We're told in Numbers 18 the answer to that question too. What is it that we're we're meant to inherit? The Lord says, I am your share and inheritance. I am your shield, Genesis 15, to Abraham. I am your shield and your very great reward. So how does the prodigal suspicion get dealt with in our hearts. It comes when we are given by the Holy Spirit, whom we are meant to ask for again and again, when we recognize that everything we are chasing to satisfy our longings, to find meaning, to be able to tell ourselves we're going to be okay beneath whatever those pursuits are, fulfilling career, happy marriage, happy children, control, you know, all these other things, They're pointers. And beneath the longing for all those things is a deeper longing for home and for the Father who is our inheritance. You know, the existentialist philosopher Camus said this. Because I longed for eternal life, because I thirsted for God, because I was a deer panting for water, I slept with prostitutes. And I drank for nights on end. But when I did that, my soul awoke to the bitter taste of the mortal state. In other words, when I look for God outside of God, I was a slave. I was a slave. Looking for God through surrogates, through substitutes, through counterfeits. Why do we do this? Why are we, why are we tentative? When we know the source, why do we pursue other things to substitute for the source? Why do we have this tentativeness? It's because we have a prodigal suspicion that Sinclair Ferguson talked about. It's because we think the Father's going to give us a stone or a scorpion. Because somehow we think we, he doesn't like us. He knows too much about us to possibly like us. One of my favorite adoption stories in the Bible is in 2 Samuel 9, where King David, he, he, he has been established as the newly minted king of Israel. And he asks the question, is there anyone from the house of my predecessor, Saul, who was a complete bully and aggressor toward David. Is there anyone from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan, the son of the king, for his sake? Because Jonathan was a dear friend of David. And they brought in a young man named Mephibosheth. And he's described this way. He was crippled in both feet. He was disabled. He had special needs. And, 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 and he's scared because custom was that you would, you would put to death everyone from the, the line of the previous king so that no one would try to take the throne back. And so Mephibosheth is scared and he says, look, I can't do anything to you. I'm crippled in both feet. And then he calls himself a dead dog. Please spare me. I'm just a dead dog. And, and, and David, like the father in Luke 15, he's like, I, I think we have a misunderstanding here. I brought you here not to finish you off. I brought you here to adopt you. Let there be no mistake. There will always be a place for you, son. 
at the king's table. No longer a slave, no longer bound to fear, but a son. And what does Jesus do? The son of the king of the universe. And when he says, is there anyone from the house of Adam? Adam who rebelled and rejected me and fled from me in the garden and hid from me in the garden. Is there anyone from the house of Adam that I can show kindness for Jesus' sake? And then in comes Jesus to bring us in in all of our disabled conditions to his table. Jesus had to become the dead dog. Jesus had to have not only his feet, but his whole body immobilized. Jesus, as it says in Philippians 2, who made himself nothing, who became the face in the crowd, who became the statistic, who became the insignificant other. So that we, plural, and you individually could become sons and heirs. An a son, an a, and an heir. He was despised and rejected by men. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. And yet to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of Abba. Which is really significant because his last cry was the only thing that we have on record where he addresses God and doesn't use the term Abba. On the cross, he says, my God, my God. Less personal, distant, remote, other. Way out there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew the answer. It was a rhetorical question. And the answer is right in front of us so that there could be a place at the king's table for you. Why go for surrogates and substitutes and counterfeits when he's gone to those lengths? to give you Abba. You're Abba's child. Thanks be to God. Can I ask you to stand with me? Elders, table servers, kids, you can all find your places as we answer a question about comfort from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Thanks be to God.